Welcome to the unexplainable, unpredictable podcast extravaganza. The most amazing podcast in the world. Unexplainable, unpredictable podcast extravaganza. I'm your host, Mr. Anderson. This is part three of episode five of Pick Your Flavor of Christianity. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the 1960s. I'll be using for reference the Jesus People Movement, a thesis written by Christina Barnes, who attended William and Mary Arts and Science. Welcome back, guys. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. All five of you out there really supporting my podcast is much appreciated. As I mentioned in the opening, I'll be using a thesis written by Christina Barnes, titled The Jesus People Movement and the Awakening of the Late 1960s. This will be kind of like a reference guide to me. I find it very helpful to find theses or documents that have been written because they have tons and tons of resources already tagged in there. And then I just go through that, and then I find their sources, and then I follow up to make sure their sources are correct. I don't use all of them, of course, because they spend a whole like semester writing this. I spend like two two weeks, so um, I kind of just dive into what I can dive into and pull things out that I find really interesting. This podcast is really going to focus on the latter part of the 1960s. I want to do a quick run-through of the early 1960s, mainly focus on the culture and you know, some quick historical events that kind of happened just to set the context. The 1960s were a time of change in America, chaotic and strange. These are great descriptions of this period. As a Bible Belt Christian, this was always looked at as a period that was really bad for Christianity and bad for America. Uh, It was looked upon as a failure in many sense of just our society becoming chaotic and evil. And a lot of people that I was around growing up were from that time period. And they really, really were over the top and probably overcompensating for their mistakes or what they failed at. And so what they were rebelling against at the time in counterculture, they were doing the same thing in reverse. So I'll give you a great example. Uh, I was probably middle school. Uh, I think my, I have siblings and I think my 
next age to me was in high school, but they were they were having an abstinence class. So this man and this woman came in and you could clearly tell they were like hippies from like the sixties. And she went on a whole like hour to two hour sermon about how holding hands will lead to you having multiple abortions. And it was so extreme that it, it was just funny to us. Like, that it, it would be that extreme in her mind that just holding a hand of your girlfriend or boyfriend would cause you to automatically know that you're going to have sex, get pregnant, and then decide to have an abortion. That's absolutely just insane. And you can just, it's, I kid you not, these were the things that, you know, Christians were like, yeah, yeah, this is good. This is really good to teach our kids. This way they'll keep their pants on there and they won't touch each other. And it just, it doesn't work. It let's, let's be honest. It doesn't work. You have to have a meaning and a purpose to really say, Hey, abstinence is a really smart choice because your life is already complicated enough. Let's not make it even more complicated. So really you can see like they were very focused on do not make the same mistakes that we did, because if you do, it's going to cause your world to go into chaos. So it really even goes back to the 1950s where we see this constraint of government purpose to say, hey, this is what an American looks like. And people really grasped onto that. And people really didn't attend church for a spiritual aspect, but more of a, a civic duty. 1940s and 50s really brought this extreme control into America that I, th- I don't think people really saw because if you look back and you see uh, the war for us did not end when Japan surrendered. We dropped those bombs, Japan surrendered, but really when that happened, Russia stayed in Korea. Russia stayed in part of Germany and the war for us continued and we're still seeing bits and pieces of the Cold War even now. And so you can see that our government in their mindset that we're thinking we're still at war and we have to do whatever we can to protect our people and to fight communism. Um, This also increased paranoia from baby boomers. Anyone could be a spy from Russia ready to kill you at any time. The Cold War, I would argue, was harder on Americans than World War II. The propaganda was in all areas of our society. TVs were brought into our homes, and most American homes had a TV in them. And this was a great way for propaganda to be in every single home. And it's not just audio like the the radio would be. This is audio and visual. So they're actually seeing the extremes or what they're being told are happening all across the world. Uh, so you would stand up and fight against communism. Changes were being made in work, women's rights, race issues, music, views on war. The truth about our government was starting to come into light. The Cold War continued to rage. The divine mushroom was rediscovered. Major social and political leaders were being murdered, and the counterculture was birthed. I mean, just reading just that little little bit there. I mean that that's enough to cause just major anxiety for me, and I'm not even in that time frame. You have 
Martin Luther King being assassinated, JFK being assassinated, our government secret projects are starting to come out into the the light and people are saying, well, we're no different than the communists are. And then you have Vietnam that is just all outraging and people are wanting change and they're looking for meaning and purpose and they're not finding it where their parents found it. I would argue, too, that their parents never really found it, but their parents had something to really latch on to during these times where they were fighting something. So it was more political in status than what you would consider a religious experience. So as children were growing up in these churches, the churches were not connecting them with the divine process. They were just an extension of the American government. And this caused great dissatisfaction. Many would argue that the decline in church attendance during the 1960s is a result of secularization. What is secularization? This quote is taken from Wikipedia. It says, in sociology, secularization is the transformation of a society from close identification with the religious values and institutions toward non-religious values and secular institutions. The secularization thesis expresses the idea that as societies progress, particularly through modernization, rational thought, and advances in science and technology, the religious authority diminishes in all aspects of social life and government. So in other words, there was a theory as a country grew, it would be less dependent on religious thought and more dependent on science and just being rational human being and technology. And then, therefore, you would stop having a polarization of religious thought against the world, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. I mean, we've heard this a million different times, but it obviously is not true because we're still dealing with the same crap now. And I would say we are probably more polarized now than we've ever been in society so as if we were growing and becoming more rational and because of modernization and technology, we should be seeing less and less division, not more and more division. That's just my logic. You could probably disagree with that, but on you. Uh, it's clear to me that this... Secularization did not occur for many reasons, like I just gave, that we're still, yes, church attendance is still declining, but we are also seeing an uptick of many other issues, and it's not necessarily a good theory. So let me give you a couple of quotes to kind of bring it into context or clarity a little bit more about what I'm saying is... So I'm arguing here that secularization does not work because I believe we have a spirit 
There is something in us that is seeking a divine encounter, something that is really after something meaningful in our lives. And you can't just do that through a computer or institutions. It's something that's deeper than that. Um, Let me give you a quote from somebody that converted to Hare Krishna during the mid-60s. Our parents thought that material possessions meant spiritual satisfaction. This let that quote sink in. So you're seeing a downcrease in church attendance, but an upcrease in people really searching meaning in other other religions. Why? Why would they do that? Let me give you another quote. This is from uh, the book 60 Spiritual Awakening, American Religion Moving from Modern to Postmodern by Robert Elwood. I quote, Congregations began to focus more on service projects and writing social ills than connecting people with the supernatural divine. So you're seeing from historians and people during that time that there was a dissatisfaction or a disconnect from what people really truly needed and what they were given. So the churches were content dropping the American line to keep people in churches. They were having success running what our government wanted them to do. The church became so entangled with politics that it was an extension of American propaganda. So they drew people in and they really gave people a sense of purpose and pride to be, you're an American, you're a Christian, but they weren't actually having spiritual divine encounters. So I don't see the drop in church attendance as a result of secularization, but a reaction to what scholar Theodore Rozak believed was technocracy. Rozak's description of an American society in which the government is run by an elite group of persons who surround themselves with technical experts. In this type of society, the government's main concern is to keep industrial production moving swiftly and without interruption. According to Rozak's explanation of technocracy, Those in power would see any challenge of the experts' authority as a possible delay in the industrial process, which could lead to disastrous results such as famine or economic depression. I think the American government took this path after World War II. They were fighting the Cold War. It was life or death. This drive to save the world resulted in reaching government control that was used by the very communists they were trying to stop. The Christian church being enmeshed with its government as being God's country felt that they should support this technocracy as they felt secularization was the enemy and the counterculture was not the failing of the church, but the pull of the world or communism to try to take God's country away. So they they continued, the church did, to use this formula. Because why? Because it was successful. And they were seeing in the past, the 1950s and 40s, that there was an explosion of church attendance. 
But just because you're in a church building does not mean that you are having an encounter. Just because you are in the church building doesn't mean you're the church. You're just in a building meeting with other people going through rituals. It's more than that. And you see the discontentment from the children. And they knew from a young age that this was not right and something is amiss. So they moved away from the established church and tried to define that in other ways through sex, through alcohol, through drugs. And to support my my theory there, so the drugs specifically entered the picture in the late 1960s. And I say entered the picture, it hit mainstream. We have drug usage all through the early part of the 1900s. Most of it is synthetic, though. Even German pilots were caught with speed, and they were put in their little medical kits. And the front against Russia... In Stalingrad, they were pumping German soldiers so full of speed that they would not sleep for days and days and days. So they had a super soldier. But the super soldier started to crack up because they needed sleep. Then enters LSD into the mainstream counterculture hippie movement. They claimed it was a way to expand their minds. They used it to open themselves up so they could feel something. They were trying to connect with the divine. But the issue with LSD is it was it's a synthetic chemical. It was developed much earlier in the 1930s, but it was first used by the CIA in MK Ultra as part of the CIA's increasing sadistic test on human beings to be weapons and they were using it to to basically open up their minds to see see in a picture in their mind. They were doing tests on our own people, and a lot of these people had no idea what they were even doing because we didn't know what LSD really even did. We didn't think it was addictive. We didn't think it hurt their body. We just thought it was a psychedelic drug that really opened people's minds. But then it was also used by psychotherapists to put people into trance so they could try to help people with mental health issues. But the one thing that's really interesting is what is called the divine mushroom. It was rediscovered in Mexico in 1959, and we also rediscovered a path from our ancestors where they used to use this to have divine encounters. And the man that actually rediscovered it went through the process in Mexico. This was also the process that hippies kind of rediscovered and were using to open up their minds to have this divine spiritual encounter. Funny enough, though, of course, the CIA got their hands on it, too, and tried to use it as a part of MKUltra, and it was disastrous as well because the CIA is a bunch of idiots. Sorry, I... Sorry, if you listen and you're a part of the CIA, I apologize, but you guys are really dumb. The church was still waiting with open arms to welcome back the wayward prodigal sons of the counterculture. And this entitles the revival of the Jesus people movement. 
This really takes us into the 1970s, and there is a big shift in counterculture. There's a lot of confusion because I felt like the counterculture was doing everything they could do, but they were still very dissatisfied. They were not getting what they wanted to do. And I feel like when we hit the Jesus People movement, is considered by some a major revival. I think that people were dissatisfied and looked back and said, well, we really did miss it. And they just went back to doing what their parents had done because it was stable and they kind of noticed it was, this was, you know, it was good. Maybe my parents were right. Maybe they weren't idiots. Um, But they still were just possibly just attending church and still not encountering the divine. But the church... I was like, well, we've had success in the 1950s. Let's just recreate what we did then. As I look at this time of change, I find myself examining the motives of people. I also find that I have what seems to be a connection with them. I also wanted to get to know them in the context of what was going on in the counterculture. Why did they, why were they so? dissatisfied. Why? Why did they feel the need that I need drugs? I need to change my music. I need to change society. What was really going on? And, you know, for me, it comes back to the church is not doing their job. The church is losing people, not because they're not relevant, we have more Six Flags Over Jesus megachurches now more than ever before. We have our own TV networks. We have our own social media to reach the world. Yet the numbers in church attendance are continuing to drop even in my generation. And the suicide rates are staggering. They actually reached a peak in 2018 and have been in a slight decline, but I really, if you look back, the self-harm, they didn't go through self-harm. They went through a revelation, a revelation, a revolution in the 1960s to push against society. I feel like we are looking back and say, well, they tried that. Um, that didn't work. So something's wrong with us. So we become inward focused and we start to harm ourselves. And why are we going through the same cycle as they did in the 1960s? We are having the same issues now. And I think it's because people are searching for something deeper and something meaningful. And I believe it's because the church cannot see that it is not possible to be relevant by being cool and competing with a free market, a.k.a. the world, because that is not what people are really after. People are after the divine. We are after meaning and connection to something we cannot explain because it it cannot be studied. It cannot be put into a formula because it is. This reminds me of Moses finding the bush. And the bush is on fire. And Moses is like, who are you? And he said, what did God say? I am that I am. We are looking for that I am. I do not believe religion is failing. I believe people are looking. And when they are going to church, they are not meeting with the divine. So they are going somewhere else. So church leaders, please 
Stop trying to compete with the world. It's just free market enterprise. You can never compete because all you do is just steal their ideas and try to make it look like something holy, just like the Jewish people did with the golden calf. People need to have their mountaintop experience. This does not mean a show with smoke, lights, sound, Oh my God, it's amazing. No, we don't need that. What did Moses experience on that mountaintop? He had to go through the noise, the thunder, the lightning, the noise, the fear, the danger that was there. He had to go meet in the eye of the storm where he came into alignment with himself. For the first time in his life, he probably felt satisfied, safe, and filled with meaning and a purpose. He encountered the divine. It does not matter if it's on a mountaintop or a million-dollar building with laser lights. It could be while you're watching a movie or you're having a drink with your friends. You have this flash of divine, a divine moment where something brings such joy that you cannot explain it, and you're always on a search for it. And this brings me back to, to Ma- the book of Matthew. And Jesus says, God's kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field for years, then accidentally found by a trespasser. The finder is ecstatic. Look what I found. And proceeds to sell everything he owns to raise money and buy that field. He continues to expand by saying God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for exquisite pearls. Finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything and buys it. That's really, for me, that embodies what encountering the divine. I think that's what Christ was talking about is when you find it, you don't ever want to get rid of it and you're always on the search for it. Okay, sorry guys. I'm done with my soapbox sermon now. I want to leave you one quote that really stood out to me from this episode. And it's from the convert from to Hare Krishna. Our parents thought that material possessions meant spiritual satisfaction. I really want you guys to let that sink in and make sure, are you in that position? Are you in the search for material possession for spiritual satisfaction. Because if you are, you are always going to be dissatisfied, period. And to me, that's what's unpredictable. That is the end of our journey through the 1960s. We'll start next week on the 1970s and explore the Jesus People Movement. Thanks for listening to the Unexplainable, Unpredictable Podcast Extravaganza.